don't be afraid of failing. You know, I think you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Just keep pushing yourself to maximize your potential. We are here with Sharmel Maynard, who is the treasurer at the University of Miami. This is a connection from Karan Rai, who is at Asgard Partners. Sharmel, awesome to have you on the show. I would love to hear who you are and what you do. <laughs> what's, what's the story? Sure, no, um, and Jordan, thank you for having me on. And like I said, shout out to, to Karan for this introduction. Um, great platform and excited to, to be a part of this. So uh, I, w- I was born in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. I grew up between there and Atlanta. My mother lived in Trinidad. My dad lived in Atlanta. I'd say like many kids growing up in the inner city, I thought I was going to be an NBA player. So I put a lot of time into that. And one of the things that that led me to do was to end up going to boarding school in Massachusetts when I was 15, uh, because I thought that's where the best NBA players and, and basketball players played. From there, I realized I was not as good as I thought and thought I should probably Spent a little bit more time in my academics, which led me to Amherst College in Massachusetts. From there, I was very fortunate to, to, to land an internship with J.P. Morgan my junior summer, where I got a full-time offer to return for the summer. Sorry, full-time. And I started at J.P. Morgan in the Leverage Finance Group in, in May of 07. Great timing. You can think back into sort of right before the global financial crisis. You know, I'd say the investment banking industry probably hit its peak the summer before. So call it the summer of 2006. So, you know, bonuses were high, deals were getting done, leverage was high, lots of money going around. Uh, They were letting anybody through the door to to be another analyst, which is probably why they let me through the door. Um, So I I entered Charmel Maynard, part of a 500 plus analyst class, which I think on record, probably the largest analyst class ever hired. What they did was they would split up the the training sessions between Team A and Team B. Team A was generally kids from from the United States, and Team B was generally the the global offices, but they all came to New York. And for some reason, because I think because I had interned the summer before, had a better handle of the system, I was in Part B. So what happened was instead of going directly into training, you hit the desk first for a couple months, then you went to training in October. So even though I started in May of 07, I didn't hit training until the fall of 07. And, you know, things were still going well. You hear, you know, bonuses are great for first years. And in the middle of training, you start hearing rumblings of what's going on. And finally, they said, hey, here comes the onset of the financial crisis. They may start cutting analysts. Um, so everything that went from a fun training session became very, very serious. So at that point, you know, they were just looking for, for reasons to, to let go of people. So if you didn't maintain an 80% average, et cetera, et cetera, they were letting people go. So it, it was not a fun time to start as, as an analyst. I'll say, you know, for our group, rough numbers, when I started, the, the group consisted of about 300 people. So both investment banking professionals, sport, et cetera, et cetera. By May of 08, that had been cut down to approximately 75 professionals. So wow. that's just to put into magnitude, you know, what was happening at, you know, the number one finance shop uh, in Wall Street at those times. So what are some memorable stories from that experience? Maybe deals that you were on or people that you worked with. And what are some lessons that we can get from that? couple memorable things. I think a lot of people who were on Wall Street at that time could probably attest. It was a massacre, right? I mean, basically everybody who sat around you, 
you know, I gave you some stats on 375 was unfortunately laid off. So that, that was obviously very high stress, whether it was an MD down to a first year analyst, which is generally the last group of people that you cut because it hurts your pipeline for new talent. We're getting left, go left and right. I, I was very fortunate to get staffed on a deal where Cadbury was spinning off the Dr. Pepper Snapple Group beverage division from their UK center onto and to be a public company in the United States. So I was very lucky to be a part of that deal and arguably in the middle of the financial crisis and we're doing a huge deal. That's not a simple deal. It's, it's a carve out. It's from a UK company. It's to the US. And it was one of the best learning experiences I had because, you know, prior to the financial crisis, all sorts of terms were getting done. Coverage levels, whether it was covenant levels. So enter this deal, you know, at one of the most challenging times in, in credit history really got to dig into what did JP Morgan all the way up to Jamie Dimon care about? What was that last term that would really set this deal back or, or potentially kill the deal going forward? So, you know, thankfully for me, I, I survived that, you know, I'd say it's probably a little bit of luck, but I got lucky and I got a chance to really, um, you know, from a credit standpoint, really learn a lot during that time. Did you ever work on any, uh, I mean, how close did you get to Jamie Dimon? Did you have a chance to ever work or kind of see the, you know, see him and maybe that the closer, the smaller team in action? Right. So I wouldn't say on this deal, you know, you know, still a first year analyst. So <laughs> I didn't have <laughs> access to it. I will say, you know, you know, maybe just going back to your prior question, Jordan, you know, one of the cool things about that time, if you can think about glass half full or silver lining was because multiple levels and layers of people, whether as an associate, vice, vice president, executive director, were no longer there, you got a chance to work directly with managing directors, directly with group heads, not, unfortunately not, not directly with Jamie Dimon, people who've been on you know, Wall Street or, or in leverage finance for 10, 20, you know, sometimes 25 years, you start working directly with them because they have to come to you. So, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be part of, of another deal that was not in the crisis when 3G bought, bought Heinz and Kraft and got to be on, the, on a phone call with Warren Buffett with the rating agencies and Jamie, which was cool. But during this time, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to work directly. But, you know, what, what you did see that sort of trickled back down to me was just how important at that time being fair was, right? And also letting go of your ego. What you saw was, you know, Jamie had clearly, we wanted to be supportive of this deal getting done. We wanted to be supportive of, of, of our clients and the people involved, both clients on, on the investment banking side, but also on the trading side about who we would be syndicating these deals to. And there were certain lines in, in the sand, whether it was leverage, whether it was, whether it was restrictions on cash leaving the system, that at the end of the day, we wanted to be fair. We wanted to let go of our ego, but we also wanted to make sure we weren't doing anything that would put both the firm at risk, but also put some of our other clients at risk while, you know, trying to try, trying to syndicate this deal. To what extent can we actually get ready for a crisis? To what extent can we actually train for a crisis? That, that's a great question, Jordan. I mean, I think, I don't think you can train for a crisis, quite frankly. I think every crisis is going to look different. You know, the 2000s with the dot-com dot bubble versus the great financial crisis, you know, in 08. You know, to you know, fast forward to the pandemic that's going around globally now, they're all different, right? I mean, I don't think anybody would thought would have thought they would see 
the equity markets draw down more than they did in 08, and, and they just did, or that we would see the, the credit markets as dislocated as we're seeing them now versus 08. So I don't think you can really apply some sort of blueprint, at least technically, across, across crises. I mean, I mean, I think what you can take away from them is our, our principles, right? I think at the end of the day, things that are directly applicable are going to be principles and how you carry yourself through these. Are you supportive of your clients? Are you supportive of, of doing the right thing? Are you, are you not price gouging? Are you not taking advantage of things? And those are more of the things that I think are, are, are probably more applicable than actually learning you know, in, in a crisis, I know that I can't lever a company more than five times. This time is completely different, you know, speaking from experience than, than I saw in 08. So let's kind of fast forward to where you're at now. Uh, what is the high level about, you know, the department that you're in? You know, is it a pension and retirement or what, what do you actually do right now? And then I'd love to kind of dive into, you know, your perspective and your take from kind of the LP's perspective on the market. In my current um, position as the treasurer of the University of Miami, I really wear two hats. On one hat, I would say is more traditional treasury. So managing our capital structure, which is about a billion four of debt, managing our cash flow, uh, making sure that we have a revolving credit facility for liquidity, things like that. My second hat that I wear is also managing all the university's investable assets. So that's our endowment, our defined benefit pension plan, as well as our short-term working capital. You know, it's a really interesting time. You know, in, in the second bucket, about how big is that? The second bucket is about two and a half billions all, all in. It's really interesting to sort of triangulate, you know, information that you're receiving from both sides, right? Because on one side, investment bankers who are telling us, hey, you guys should have been issuing debt. You know, it was 10-year treasury was at an all-time low, great time to get into the market. Then on the, on the flip side, you have the credit managers telling you, you know, it's really distressed at this time. It's a tough time. Investment rate is under pressure on this prior to the, to the bailout. So, you know, we're really sort of triangulating into what's best for, for the university. So I'd say on the first hat, you know, we're definitely taking a pause on, on thinking about and issuing any debt until there's a little bit more visibility into how this pandemic is going to end. On the investment side, it's been really, really interesting and really exciting. I'd say, you know, if I could focus on the endowment first for a minute, we are long-term investors. Our, our, our primary objectives are to, one, meet the university's spending needs, and two, to preserve purchasing power. So, you know, we think about this, you know, over, generation, over generations and perpetuity. So, you really don't see many opportunities like this come about where you can really set the institution up for long-term success by being able to, to really buy, you know, whether it's equities, whether it's credit at very attractive prices, again, that you can withstand some of the near-term volatility to hopefully on the back end create um, outsized. So I think, do you think that's pretty representative of LPs in general from pensions, endowments that, you know, the message is we're not shutting down for business clearly? What is the message to kind of the GP community in how to think about interacting with you and others generally, maybe from the LP community? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'd say there's a couple of things. I think you you asked the questions. In my experience, endowments and foundations, pension pools, et cetera, are not shutting down by any means. If anything, they're trying to figure out how to put more money to work if that's possible. So that I think that's the first thing to remember is that 
again, these are mostly long-term pools of capital, specifically on, on the higher education side, I'd say. And they have pools of capital for, for this exact situation. I think from advice to GPs, it's really you know doing a little bit of diligence on who you're pitching, right? So how is this affecting the person that you're are you pitching? So for example, higher education endowments, usually spending rates are on a three-year moving average so that when there are periods of volatility, it smooths out the, the distribution so that the, the departments who are getting that money don't have a sudden drop-off. So you know, trying to understand how the spending policy and spending rate works will give you some indication into the amount of capital or dry powder that an institution might have. I say in addition to that, trying to figure out what percentage of operating budget the spending distribution consists of will also give you some, some insight into how much dry powder they have. So for example, the University of Miami, our spending distribution really only represents about 1%, 0 to 2% of our overall operating budget because we have a large health system. So for us, a change in our distribution isn't really going to affect our overall spending budget that much. Now, there are other peers where the spending distribution might be something like 45%. So you can see a drawdown in their endowment having a lot more um, effect on, on, on them and how much dry powder they're going to have to have because they're probably using their liquid investments to, to liquidate to provide operating cash. So I think doing a little bit of, of research in terms of what percentage the endowment spending consists of, of their overall budget, but also how they calculate their spending policy will really give you some good insight into how much dry powder they may have. Again, I think institutions with solid financials are going to be using some of that dry powder to, you know, to dollar cost average into you know, equities or you know, at this point, maybe fixed income, some investment grade things that, that are really cheap because they know that there's not going to be a big drawdown on capital to fund operating. When you look at 2020, given the current context, and all things considered, approximately how much do you think you might be deploying to private equity or right. private credit? You know, maybe just kind of focusing on those, if, if that's something we can discuss. You know, actual numbers, maybe not as much, but I can tell you sort of how we think about our, our philosophy on, on these asset classes. I think yeah. you know, the University of Miami was a little bit behind in allocating to those asset classes first. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were really starting from scratch, I'd say probably when I joined in 2016, you know, really thinking about how do you build out a sustainable private equity portfolio, you know, private equity consisting of buyouts, venture, could be private credit, et cetera, et cetera. And I think how we think about it is, okay, well, what's your target, right? And if you build out some sort of a funding calendar or schedule, when do you think you're going to hit that target? Right. And I think it's really important to be building a diversified portfolio, diversified across geography, size, style, manager, you know, probably most importantly, vintage here. So you don't have your eggs all in one basket. It can take up to 10 years. Right. So that you and when I say sustainable is that you're getting a consistent return of capital and redeploying that capital into into another strategy or the same strategy or same manager. So. You know, for us, for example, you know, we have a target of about 8%. You know, for us, we think that's going to take, you know, several years to get to. So we backed into, if we like bite sizes, you know, X million, how many does that mean per year? And I think for us, we're, we're staying disciplined where B 
because things are depressed or because things might be overpriced or underpriced, we're staying consistent with how we're deploying that capital. Because again, we should be agnostic, you know, while, while taking a step back and being realistic to, okay, things are overpriced. You know, we were still committing capital to private equity, even though valuations were at all time high. And I think that the same would be the same if, if it was reversed. Things were cheap. That didn't mean that we would throw all of our eggs into one basket for one vintage year. And I think that's how a lot of, they're trying to stay consistent. You know, and I think for, you know, if that were relating to GPs who might be pitching it at this time, I think it's really important to, to, to hammer home your story and perfect your story, right? Because you're really going to have to pitch to these, these LPs, excuse me, that, you know, they might be getting stressed from their investment committee or from their board, you know, about what are we doing with our dry powder? But you're really going to have to say, okay, these times are going to pass just like other periods of volatility. This is what we can add to you. Right? So you might be a long equity fund and say, hey, this is a perfect time to invest in us if, you're, if I'm a startup manager, because I don't have the baggage of, of an existing portfolio that somebody else might have, right? Same thing for VCs. You hear Scott Cooper talk about, you know, Andreessen being started in the financial crisis. They didn't have the same drags that Sequoia had. Um, in terms of drawdowns on their portfolio companies. So they were able to take advantage of fresh capital. And so I think that there's always going to be an opportunity and, and really sticking to your story and to your guns and not saying, oh, man, I'm, you know, I'm raising a credit fund right now. That's going to be tough. You know, you're really going to have to stick to your guns and really convince people why from a long-term perspective, you're still going to add value. What are some, maybe some specific tactics that people have approached you with that you found to be like effective for example like as opposed to this typical presentation that everyone does they took a completely different turn on it is there anything that people have done that's kind of different and interesting to kind of stand out yeah i mean i think it's really just being as transparent as possible right i think it's you know returns in a vacuum don't mean anything so pitching against an index is pitching against your peers and you know what i always say is it's okay if you're down right? You know, everybody has tough quarters, has tough years, but it's how well do you manage against, you know, the beta, right? Against your index, against your peers. So for example, we were only up 0.04% this past fiscal year, but we beat our index, right? So I think it's all contextual. And a lot of the times, a lot of the, the faults I find in some managers pitches, they show you returns, but they don't show you relative to what? Right. And I think being as upfront and transparent as possible about how you're performing. And hey, if, even if you didn't perform, hit, hit that up front. Say, hey, we got hit by this one investment. If we pull that out of the portfolio, this is what our returns would have been. And I think a lot of people, you know, in my seat who are, who are managing that money are going to trust you a lot more if you're just up front and we don't have to go and un- uncover that in, in your data. Room. Regardless of what type of business you're, you're doing, just being transparent, good and bad, it's the right thing to do. And yeah. it's fundamentally about this, the business of trust and people can smell it really quickly yeah. if you are trying to hide something. And at the end of the day, it comes down to being transparent and saying who you are and what you're doing. And it's either a fit or it's not, and, and not trying to force something because they're either going to find out now or they're going to find out later. Exactly. And one of the things you know, that, that I have to sort of switch my mindset moving from investment banking to, to the asset management side and, and the sort of the CIO seat was these relationships aren't transactional, right? So I remember as a left fin banker, it was, we're going to go pitch for this high yield bond. If we didn't get it, 
you know, you sort of throw that client in the, in, in the basket of I'll, I'll check in on, on that for years, right? In this role, in the CIO role, th- these relationships are extremely long, right? So just because your high yield fund isn't great for us right this second doesn't mean that it's not going to be great for us in three years, right? And, you know, like I said, we're long-term capital. So once you're locked in, that's going to be a long-term relationship, hopefully. And, you know, I remember a peer telling me, a story about about Marks over at, at Oak Tree, who he went proactively to his LPs and said, "You should divest from us right now, right?" And this was going into 08, I believe. And he said, "You know, just remember though, when I come back and say this is the time to invest, that so you trust me, right?" So I think just having that mindset of every time you're not going to win every pitch on the first first pitch, but it's just about consistency and listening to each other about okay, you know, they're not really focused on fixed income right now; they're they're focused on on a hedge, multi-strat hedge fund manager right now, but I'm going to keep it, keep in the back of my mind that I'm going to keep updating them, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, for us, that's been extremely effective that it's not just sort of a disappointment when we say, Hey, this isn't great for us right now. It's really having that long-term mindset in mind. God, that's such good advice right there. Cause it's, it's easy to be transactional, especially as most of us are trained as bankers. <laughs> you got a deal, you got to get it done. Um, and especially now with the added context of what's going on in the economy, you know, we're focused on putting money into the bank, feeding our, feeding our families. And there's that, that instinctive mentality, but it's actually just taking a second to be calm and realize, like, think of them first and what is their situation and right. does it fit or not? And it, it's okay yeah. if it's not now, it could be in two or three years. Exactly. In two or three years, is fine. That's a lifetime. I mean, that's a very, very short amount of time in an endowment or a pension's life cycle, you know, to potentially land a deal. It, it, takes, it takes a long time, right? We're in a different position than some other funds who their diligence process could be two years, right? Ours can be a month. But, you know, understanding each client's, you know, investment process is different will give you a little bit of insight into sort of how do I pitch this? Do I slow play it? Do I come in guns blazing? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I find it you know, surprising sometimes when, you know, people haven't looked at, you know, who, who's on our board, right? So if our board, you know, may not be as familiar with venture capital, it might be a tougher pitch than maybe one of our counterparts on the West Coast who are, who are completely familiar with venture capital. So, you know, just really taking, you know, 15 minutes to poke around on the website, see who's on the investment committee, who's on the board, you know, things like that, that we've discussed earlier, I think really goes a long way. Just like any interview, like if you come in knowing actual information about that institution, I remember as an interviewer at JP Morgan, you know, you would hear this pitch from, from incoming analysts, oh, you know, I want to do banking because of this, Y, Z. But I knew they just told that to Morgan Stanley or to Barclays or whatever, but I remember there was a kid who came in and said, oh, I was just reading, you know, Jamie Dimon's letter to the shareholders. I was like, automatically, like, you're going through because you went above and beyond. Just little things like that, I think, go a long way when, when, when talking to, to LPs. That's awesome. All right. Let's do a kind of wrap up in terms of when you look at your career, what is maybe one big takeaway that you've kind of is in the front of your mind, kind of, we're about to go through some interesting times. We're already in that right now. But yeah. what is the one thing that you, maybe if it's, maybe it's like a, a saying from your dad or your mom yeah. or your experience at JP Morgan, is there one yeah. thing that's kind of front of mind that no matter what comes at you? Yeah, you sure. I mean, I, I mean, I think, 
you know, for me, it's something that I live by often. It's sort of don't be afraid of failing. You know, I think you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, Ray Dalio in, in his book, Principle, says, if you're not failing, you're not pushing yourself. And if you're not pushing yourself, you're not maximizing your potential. So, you know, you hear, you know, people like Michael Jordan say, hey, you know, I have butterflies in my stomach before a playoff game, right? You, it, it's natural to have you know, a little bit of sweat on your palms or, or, or underneath your arms going into a big meeting. That means you care. Right. So, you know, I really just try to make sure that I'm pushing myself. And, you know, if you fail, that's not a loss. That's a lesson. You know, that has been top of my mind my entire career is that do not be afraid of, uh, afraid of failing. Just just keep pushing yourself to maximize your potential. All right. Appreciate your time with this. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, Jordan. I appreciate you having me.